Welcome to the Africa Legal Podcast Series. You're listening to Carol Campbell in conversation today with Dr. Funke Abimbola, Chief Executive Officer and Board Advisor of the Austin Bronte Consultancy. Funke was awarded an MBE in 2017 for services to diversity and young people. She has an honorary Doctor of Laws from the University of Hertfordshire, awarded for contributions to social and corporate diversity. Her leadership and influence have also been recognized by the Financial Times, who listed her as being one of the top 15 ethnic minority leaders globally. Welcome, Funke. What an honor it is to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be part of this. Thank you. Oh, it's nigh impossible to list your achievements on a short program um, <laughs> like this one. <laughs> but you're such an inspiration. If we can jump straight in, um, prejudice is a scourge that we just cannot seem to escape in society. Where are we going wrong? Yes. From from my point of view, I think the foundation for overcoming prejudice lies in, in a deeply rooted understanding of where the prejudice actually stems from. Um, you know, w- without gaining this understanding, uh, it's actually very difficult to acknowledge and respect uh, the prejudice and, and to really understand what the root cause of it is. And there really needs to be an education around the history behind prejudice. For example, the current prejudice that black people experience stems directly from the transatlantic slave trade. And without that understanding, without understanding the black people were traded like property over a significant period of time, and that the laws were such that it was actually legal to kill your own slaves, it's really difficult as someone who isn't black to begin to appreciate where racism against black people actually stems from. There needs to be a respect and acceptance and a deeply rooted acknowledgement of this history by those who are not black. And then you just, you know, I think you just look at different areas like discrimination against women is also based on women's history because until relatively recently, women in the UK were unable to inherit property or, or be educated to acquire the skills to make a good living. It was only in 1919 that women were considered to be persons able to qualify as lawyers in England. So again, with women's history, this time lag has had a direct impact on how women are perceived, women's rights generally, and the fact that the legal profession is very male-shaped and, and is designed for those who don't have care or other responsibilities means that women end up having these challenges progressing within law, for example. So the history of where the prejudice comes from is key to the next question, which is prejudice at work. Mm. Um, and, and it's something that is so insidious and it can threaten your progression. How does one handle it when you're actually in the situation? Yes. I've seen that the best way around this is to speak up through the most appropriate forums within the workplace context itself. So in the UK, this would typically involve having informal discussions Uh, which can then be escalated to a more formal process. In the UK, that would be raising a grievance. However, before doing this, and this is really, really key, I would always advise that you actually process the raw emotion behind what you've experienced in a safe space, in a healthy way, because being angry and emotional in the workplace, no matter how justified, 
that anger might be in light of the prejudice experience is actually going to be counterproductive. Unfortunately, what happens is people only focus on the delivery of the message and not the message itself. <laughs> so, you know, it's important to, to be able to convey what you need to say in, in a measured way, which is only able to happen. You know, you can only do that if you've already processed the raw emotion behind what you're feeling. And then only once all the formal workplace processes for speaking up have been exhausted completely, would I suggest seeking employment law advice, you know, formally um, instructing a, a lawyer uh, to actually advise you on your legal rights. But always start with the informal route first. It's about keeping a lid on your emotions in the heat of the moment, which is always so difficult. But I completely hear you. You don't get your message across unless you calm yes. and, and keep it together. Now, what gives you hope? Because, I mean, this situation that, that's been unfolding around the world over the last couple of weeks, um, it just one, one almost wants to latch on to something that it can be resolved, that we can all get along. Yes. Do you feel hope? Initially, I didn't, I have to say. Uh, the first week after George Floyd's death was, was horrific. Um, and a lot yeah. of people experienced the, you know, a, a volcano of emotion. And it was very draining mentally and just absolutely awful. Um, but now that we've seen that his death has ignited uh, globally, you know, a, a genuine outcry. And it's been a real rallying call. And I believe very firmly that this will ignite change in a way that we probably haven't experienced in our lifetimes. That's what my hope is. But aside from that, I, I, I only need to look at some of the progress we've made in the legal profession to see that there truly is hope. I mean, in the decade that I've been a, a diversity campaigner, I've seen law firms setting measurable diversity targets and being held to account for those targets. I've seen blind recruitment um, being looked at and used more extensively. I've seen firms embracing flexible working, uh, enhanced parental leave, setting up staff networks. You know, these were things that just didn't exist when I was entering the profession 20 years ago. So that makes me very, very hopeful. And actually, the fact that the legal profession has now sort of snowballed in terms of his maturity around diversity awareness and initiatives. It's meant that I've been able to comfortably transition my inequalities work focus to the healthcare sector, you know, which is what I'm now doing um, as, a, as a focus and, you know, more so in light of COVID-19. So I do think there's hope, but it's very draining, you know, it really, yeah. there are days when I think, my goodness me, have we moved forward at all? but we should never lose sight of the progress that we have made. You've raised your work uh, in the legal profession in the UK. Can I ask just to, in your own experience, what are, what are some of the issues that repeatedly raise their head? Yeah. So the issues in the legal profession in the UK, uh, and I'm talking specifically about law firms where, you know, you're a fee earner, where you're generating revenue. It's a different business model to working as an in-house lawyer. Uh, the issues have ranged from barriers to entry from for those from underrepresented groups to, to retention and, and promotion uh, challenges. So, you know, my, my diversity work, which has all been voluntary and done on top of a demanding full-time career, has been focused on three diversity strands. I focused on race, gender, and social mobility. And around race, if you have a, a non-English name, 
there are many, many studies and there's data, hard data to show that you have to apply to twice as many places. You need to put in twice as many applications to get any callbacks, any interviews, any progression. Around the gender piece, and I've just mentioned this earlier, the legal profession is is male-shaped. You know, it assumes that it's designed for those who don't have care or other responsibilities outside of work. So, you know, that's been a challenge because women tend to be the ones who, who take on the bulk, if not all, the care responsibilities. So they are disproportionately affected by this. And then social mobility is the, the third area I focus on. And that's around the cost of entry into the profession. You know, it's not cheap getting legal training. And a lot of law firms still have a preference for the top 20, 24 law um, universities and, and, and law schools, which excludes a, a huge bulk of students who might be very, very capable, often, you know, are incredibly capable, but for whatever reason chose not to go to a Russell Group or top university. So, you know, implicit bias is also a major barrier. Uh, in 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 the UK and and just generally and the problem with this is that as humans we tend to flock to those who are the same or similar to us and we feel more comfortable with what is familiar but this becomes a challenge when it needs to uh, making hiring and other decisions to the detriment of those from underrepresented groups so those are the challenges that are seen repeatedly uh, in the legal profession. Now, in 2017, you were awarded an MBE by the Queen for your work encouraging diversity. Could you describe how this came about? It, it really, to this day, I mean, this is almost three <laughs> years ago now. I oh. still cannot get my head around it. Uh, it was the most humbling experience. The process was um, receiving a letter in early May in 2017, very official looking letter with uh, cabinet office stamped on it. I actually thought it was a tax bill because oh, <laughs> I, seriously, because that week we'd had all these seminars at work about tax liability and pensions. And, and I was convinced that I owed the, um, you know, the tax guys a lot of money. I mean, completely irrational. Um, but it was actually a letter of consent from the, the, the cabinet office, you know, asking for my permission to consent to being awarded Queen's Honour because you need to actually say, yes, I want to accept. Um, and th I then had to keep it secret for six weeks, which was so difficult um, because there's a six-week gap until the, the list, the honours list, is actually announced uh, in mid-June. And it was only after this that those who had nominated and supported my nomination came forward in droves uh, and confessed their involvement over what was the best part of a two-year process? Because the nomination process is is almost two years long and the cabinet office advises that it's all done in secret without the nominee's knowledge. So I had no idea that people were, you know, sending letters and all sorts of letters of support. And okay. <laughs> it, it really, but, you know, it was wonderful because I, I received my MBE formally from Prince Charles at Buckingham Palace uh, in December 2017, I had a wonderful conversation with him that led to me, him inviting me to a Commonwealth reception at Clarence House 10 months later. So um, it, it has led to so many things and it's just leveraged my platform uh, around, you know, influencing change uh, in this area. Now, my work has been propelled even further in the three years since being awarded the, the MBE, but a wonderful, very, very humbling, very humbling to this day. Fugger, that is an incredible story. Could you tell us about your voluntary work that led to the MBE? I mean, it was all because I was so angry that to enter the legal profession 20 years ago, 
I had to make over 150 phone calls um, before securing interviews. And, and the context of this is I come from a privileged, you know, upper middle class Nigerian background. I was privately educated uh, at a girls boarding school in, in England. I went to a top law school. Uh, in the UK, that you know, as far as I was concerned, there were no, it was green lights all the way. And yet I faced hard barriers, uh, name discrimination, you know, having the African name um, meant that I, you know, just sending off CVs and covering letters wasn't going to uh, get me there. Um, so it was a real issue. And I was so angry that I had to do that, you know, that, you know, I got my foot in the door. And, and then when I had my son, that was the next hurdle, you know, returning after maternity leave and keeping my career going was such a challenge. I had to end up uh, leaving the uh, central London law firm where I worked to move out into a regional firm because it, it just it was so difficult to try and accommodate um, my me being a mother. And this was despite working full time and, you know, being prepared to do five days. So as a channel for, for the anger, and it really was a case of me being so angry for maybe the four or five, first four or five years of my son's life, I thought I've got to channel this anger in some way. I mean, I can't carry on just being annoyed and resentful and so on. And I started talking to other people to see if their experience was similar to mine. And I found that there were many, many women who'd experienced the same. Yeah. And then there were people who were socially disadvantaged who'd had challenges. And there were people with disabilities. And there were people, you know, who were, who were Black who'd had problems. And we started talking and then I started mentoring. And then I was I, I received, um, you know, I, I got a really, really uh, top job, very visible job uh, as a um, the head of legal for the world's largest biotech company at the beginning of 2012. And it was, you know, I was the first black uh, woman to be in that kind of role, became the most senior black lawyer working in the, the healthcare sector in the UK. And it just really gave me that platform to speak out, the visibility. And it just propelled from there. You know, I, I engaged with the Law Society, which is the membership organization for solicitors. Um, I encouraged the Law Society to invest more in diversity initiatives. I gave practical ideas and tips around what we could and could not do. And it snowballed, you know, it snowballed from there and led to me meeting the prime minister and advising the government on making the judiciary more diverse and advising on work experience schemes at government level um, and doing all sorts of work with the government around criminal justice and, you know, how the minority ethnic people in the UK are overly represented in the criminal justice system, you know, prison, stop and search, etc. But the work just snowballed from that underlying raw anger that I felt um, at not having the, the green lights that should, given my education, actually have been my experience. It's about taking that rage and just getting it into the right place. And, and you can actually achieve so much if you just di properly direct it. Absolutely. And, I, you know, my thinking, I mean, you know, I've got a son. I mean, he's now almost 18. But the time when I was doing this, he was very young and I was juggling, you know, childcare and nursery and when he had chicken pox and chest infection and all of that. Um, and it was tough, you know, to to be doing the day job and then trying to do all this on the side. But I just thought, well, if it's not going to be me, who else is going to do it? You know, everyone can find an excuse for not being the ones 
who make the sacrifice to actually progress things. But I thought I've got to be the one who, who picks up the mantle here. I've got to have the courage to speak out, to drive change. And thank goodness, that's really, really inspired others to do the same, you know, and it's, um, mm. it's really snowballed. I have now so many people contact me to say they heard me speak here. They saw me, you know, I do a lot of work for the BBC. I'm a, a commentator for them. And there's so many things I do that people say makes them realize that they should be doing more and then they go on to do more. Uh, it's, it's been a wonderful journey so far. What advice would you have for young Africans who face these odds, the financially limited opportunities, so that they can gain ground and actually get ahead? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I would say, first and foremost, work on your confidence as a foundation. You know, start with a really firm grasp of your history and identity and build on that. Recognize that you'll need to build your resilience muscles, as I say, because it's incredibly tough. Um, entering the legal profession, wherever you are. I mean, there are far more students wanting to enter the profession than there probably would be opportunities um, to, to, to train and to qualify. Um, but you need to be very, very determined and, uh, and show that grit and not give up. I mean, I've just said I made over 150 phone calls um, to ultimately secure the interviews for my entry-level role. So that's what it, it can take. You know, you really, you need to keep going, get the support you need, uh, in terms of family and friends who believe in you, to keep going with the applications. Do your research to find out about scholarship and other schemes that are available, because there are far more um, schemes like that available now than there ever have been. In the UK, for example, um, I support an organization called Aspiring Solicitors, and it's now the biggest diversity platform um, for those wanting to enter the legal profession. And there's all sorts of opportunities available through Aspiring Solicitors. Using LinkedIn as a tool is really key as well, because there's lots of free guidance um, available online on how to leverage LinkedIn to build a network, to make connections, to, to find new opportunities. So LinkedIn is an invaluable tool to use, but manage expectations when you're using LinkedIn around potential mentors, because I get bombarded with mentoring requests. And with the best one in the world, I can't even respond to all the requests, you know, People who are who potential mentors are very, very busy people. But the thing is, you can actually learn a lot uh, without ha having them mentor you. You can look at the content that they're posting on LinkedIn. You, there's so many resources on YouTube and other resources around what needs to what you need to be doing in terms of building um, that career or getting your foot in the door. So I would urge, you know, those who are finding it hard to avoid a sense of self-entitlement to a mentor's time. You know, time is a precious commodity. And, um, you know, don't contact a mentor for information on something that you can find out from a simple Google search. I mean, <laughs> I get these sorts of requests all the time. I think <laughs> there's Google, just Google. You know, you can Google search scholarships that might be available. I mean, Google didn't exist when I was entering the profession. So those are some of the tips that I, I, I give to people. Uh, and that's certainly what I'd advise uh, on this podcast. Now, many of our followers at Africa Legal are in Nigeria, which is your homeland. Yes. But away is home. And do uh, you get back very often? Yes. So I'm a very, very proud Nigerian. I'm Nigerian born. Uh, I now have dual uh, citizenship, but I, you know, I'm Nigerian born, so I have a Nigerian passport and a British passport. Uh, I was actually born in Lagos, 
the crazy exciting urban centre that it is. And I moved to the UK when I was eight uh, for educational purposes. And I tried to return to Nigeria to visit family annually. So I was last home in September uh, 2019 for a major family occasion. I don't think COVID-19 will allow me to, to fly home uh, this side of Christmas this year, but I certainly hope to travel uh, with my son next year uh, and visit Lagos and, and see my family again. Funke, thank you for sharing these insights with us today. To our listeners, You've been following a conversation with Dr. Funke Abambola on the Africa Legal podcast series. Africa Legal works to link lawyers across the continent, supporting legal professions and access to justice. Until next time, this is Carol Campbell saying goodbye and thank you for listening.